Welcome to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watched our game and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing. Better to do so. Listen, here's our show. Hello and welcome to Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I am your host today. My name is Samantha and I am joined by Rose, a super fan of Stargate. And Malika, I'm still on the fence about being a fan. Today we are discussing In the Line of Duty, episode two of season two. So we start off the episode staring at a statue of what looks like Lenin. <laughs> it just does. It looks like Lenin. In the background is a Canadian lake. <laughs> yep. Suddenly there's weapons fire and we see Gaud gliders flying around. This village is under attack and the village people are running around while the Gaud are firing down on them. Daniel says, don't panic, literally, as they're getting shot at. <laughs> really helpful. <laughs> It is really a chaotic scene. There's lots of people flying everywhere. Yeah, a ton of multicolored burlap. (laughs) Still a lot of fur and leather here. I was just like, their clothes must be so itchy. They're not running from the Gauld death gliders. They're running from how itchy their burlap outfits are. Uh, We see SG-1 there helping out the villagers against the Gauld. Uh, we see O'Neill running around carrying a child. Carter stops to look at a guy who's fallen down. She said he's still alive. Daniel is helping people go through the Stargate. O'Neill hands him the kid and says he's going to go back for Carter. We see the gliders coming around for another pass. Daniel is calling for the medic on this one guy who has some pretty terrible looking burns on his face. I guess this is the, the burn victim that shows up later in the episode. We cut back to Carter, who's doing CPR mouth-to-mouth on this guy. Then the guy grabs her head, and we hear that that telltale squeaky sound of the symbiote. Carter uh, coughs up blood, and her eyes glow. Dun-dun-dun. Yeah, dun-dun-dun. We all go, oh shit. O'Neill joins her. He doesn't suspect anything. And she tells him that the guy had a seizure and that he bit his tongue, which is why she's coughing up blood. So at this point, is the symbiote now talking? I always have this question when you have ghouls who are kind of hiding out in people, because we do kind of see this in the future. Are they hiding out and letting the people be the regular selves to be unsuspecting? Or are they like just trying to be as good as possible mimicking what the people's behavior would be like? As soon as she, her eyes uh, started to glow, I think it was a gold. I think the whole time. That was my impression. So from now on, she's symbiote, Sam. Yeah. I I did want to address the CPR thing. So at one point, I have no idea why, but I had to do a a couple CPR classes. And they actually physically gave us this like plastic shield so that you blow into like a tube and their mouths are covered with the plastic not saran wrap. It's a little thicker than that, but like a thing. And the tube makes it so if they do throw up that it doesn't get to your mouth. It has like a one-way valve, but you could get all sorts of diseases by just wrapping your lips around some alien face. And they did have a medic there, right? Because Daniel called medic. 
Maybe the medic has the, the mask. Oh, the medic should have the mask that has the bulb that you squeeze. So you don't even have your mouth close to the person. Do they know yet that a symbiote can enter through the mouth? Okay. So they don't. No, they learned it in this episode. And I, so I guess I think I had mentioned that MRI protocols, I guess they didn't do that until this episode. Yeah. Cause she was just checked and they were looking for marks like on her neck and stuff. All of, <laughs> all of their procedures is based on Kowalski and that's it. Why would you assume that's the only way they can get in? Why do we take our shoes off on the airplane? Somebody once tried to light them on fire. <laughs> it hasn't changed. The government has not changed. O'Neill and Carter run towards the Stargate. They make it through. The gate room is chaotic. There's lots of injured people. O'Neill asks Symbiote Sam if she's okay. And she says, yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. Should he have inquired further? What do you think? She just would have snowed him. I mean, she was acting kind of distant and kind of shell-shocked. So I can understand why he would ask her that. But I mean, she's a little extra shell-shocked because she's symbiote Sam. So we know that she has the symbiote. Everyone else doesn't know. So how was your reaction when you like see her eyes glow? Are you like, fuck, Sam, this is the end of Sam. I think I thought that. This is obviously not the first time I've seen this, but I think I was really freaked out the first time I saw this. Well, when, when I see a show that I haven't watched before, so this is my first time watching this and something crazy like that happens or death happens or whatever, the way I know that that is not a bad thing is I, I'm just like, this is the first season or this is the second season. That person's not really dead. Sam isn't going, this isn't the end of her. This isn't Game of Thrones. No. Yeah. That's the reason why Game of Thrones was so amazing because Martin would just fucking kill you off. The main character kill you off in like the first 10 pages. He didn't give a shit. Well, I think now shows kill off main characters kind of like willy nilly, but not then back, back in this day, it was a bigger deal to kill off main characters. And you own like, whenever they would go on a missions, you have your Stargate version of the red shirts, which are like the unnamed Marines that just all seem to die. Nobody cares. So the next scene is in the boardroom. Daniel is explaining why the Gaud are attacking these village people. Apparently the village people wanted to set up a research outpost with SG-1. Did, did they seem like they were technologically advanced? It's very colonizery. And again, you have a situation where people were not attacked. SG-1 comes moseying through. All of a sudden they get attacked. Now I realize we find out that that's not the reason they were attacked. They were attacked because of the Tok'ra, but don't you think SG-1 or the SG-C should be concerned that they are like raining death and destruction on every community they go to visit? They don't seem that concerned about it. I don't think they put the, put it together. This Air Force seems like there's not a lot of deep thinking. You're like, oh, this just sucks that this keeps happening. Exactly. <laughs> this keeps happening. Oh, let's go get a coffee. <laughs> So these village people are called the Nausians. I always want to call them the Nausicans. Yes, me too, from Star Trek. Or the nauseous <laughs> people. <laughs> and while Daniel is explaining this to everyone, the camera moves to symbiote Sam. And she looks really different. I don't know if it's a different hairstyle, if it's a different makeup, or if it's just Amanda Tapping's incredible acting skills, but she looks really different. 
I vote number three. I think it was her acting because later on we'll see the makeup change and we'll see the the toll that the gold is taking on symbiote Sam's body. But I think it was she was portraying a different person. And so I think it was her mannerisms and her the way she held her face. Yeah, I mean, I think she did just a fantastic job in this episode because she really does portray a different person very, very subtly. With like, it, it was just very good. O'Neill thinks that Gaul showed up because they kicked Apophis's butt. Tilk says that the Gaul just like to wipe out civilizations for no reason at all, for shits and giggles. Symbioke Sam takes issue with this and tells Tilk that maybe the Gaul don't tell you everything, Tilk. So you are just a Jaffa. <laughs> You're just a Jaffa. Burn. Yeah. Everyone looks at her like you just slapped him. That uh, was but, like awful. But it's probably the truth because the last episode, we, we found out that Tilk doesn't know how to drive one of those big pyramid spaceships. So they don't tell him everything. No, Tilk doesn't know shit often. And like, <laughs> apparently, I mean, as much as I love Tilk, they definitely he says stuff and then, oh, they must have upgraded their warp drive since I last was here. Okay, so then maybe stop relying on his intel on the ship. But you can say the same thing about the team. They're just humans. They have even less of a clue than Tilk. It sounded to me very condescending, very gowled-like. But Symbiote Sam does try to backtrack. She says Apophis probably wouldn't tell Tilk everything. She says some art of war bullshit. And O'Neill gives her kind of a side eye at this point. So it it just seems like O'Neill is steadily becoming more suspicious that something is up with her, but he doesn't say anything. Like even, even when he tells her to go report to the infirmary to get scanned or, you know, to have Dr. Fraser look at her and she gives him a big hit on his arm and says, okay, <laughs> he still doesn't think anything's the matter. I think he does. I think he just was like, but I can't really put my finger on it. Right. Like something's up but I, but if i tell somebody something's wrong with carter they're gonna be like well, why do you think that and he's gonna be like she punched me on the shoulder they're gonna be like so <laughs> so i think he is starting to suspect but doesn't really have enough to go on yet it just seems like based on their history of mind control of galwood control that he should tell somebody they shouldn't have to be in the gate room you know pointing a gun at her and and carter has a grenade a live grenade in her hand <laughs> Symbiote Sam does report to the infirmary. There is an abrasion on the back of her throat. So did, do you get the sense that everyone goes through this kind of exam when they come back from the gate? Yeah. And I think part of that is because you see her feeling at the back of her neck. Part of that is to check that they're not implanted. But I mean, the fact that they waited. So they triaged all the people in the gate room. Then they had a board meeting and Carter still hadn't been seen by Dr. Frazier. Like that seems like number one, right? Because of their history, don't let them, the team walk or anybody who comes through the gate, just walk around the base, period. You go straight to Dr. Frazier. After you get decontaminated, that should also be part of your protocol. Uh, Dr. Fraser tells Symbiote Sam that Cassandra has been asking about her and that Cassandra will be at the hospital tomorrow if she wants to stop by. Symbiote Sam says, sure, she'll stop by. So wouldn't it have been easier for Symbiote Sam just to say, no, I don't want to meet your daughter. I have work to do. I mean, why does she want to go to the hospital? Probably to appear normal, right? Because yeah, Sam but- loves Cassandra and, want, and think it would be suspicious if she said no. But Sam also likes to work. 
So I, I think it would be fine if she said, no, I've got too much work to do. Because it, it just seems like she's opening herself up to more, to, to being found out if she meets even more people. I did like, just to throw it in there, I, this is a great nod to working motherhood that you're bringing your kid to work with you. We have all been there that one, those of us that have kids who have very big lapses in childcare schedules, take my kids to court all the time. So I was like, yeah, I like this working mother, like that it's being shown on TV that you actually sometimes have to haul your kid places. Well, I have a question. Is Cassandra radiating radiation? Is it totally tamped down so she is not a danger or does she still have some kind of like you put one of those detectors over her and it's like beep, beep. she has Naquita in her blood, which is the gate element. But she will always have that. I mean, fair point when someone is a human bomb and then they suddenly stop being a human bomb. You should have some caution about them maybe again turning into a human bomb. Everyone seems to be fine with it. So whatever, but she does have NACWIN in her system, which I guess is sort of activated or something when she's near Goulds. But she doesn't go off like a bomb. Yeah, but, but they don't know that she won't. That's the thing. Also, fucking Cassandra again is now traumatized. Like the one person who loved her and who she connected with is now a Gould. <laughs> Poor fucking kid. They do this to her every episode. Every episode that she's in, something horrible happens and she's traumatized. She can take it. She's strong. <laughs> Yeah, she's just 11 year old kid. She's got Naquita in her body. Yeah. So this Air Force Academy hospital where all, where all the Nazis, 237, I think, is how many Nazians they save, saved with bunny ears from this planet. So is this hospital just for the aliens or is this also for uh, officers as well? Yeah, that's a good question. And and like the fact that they're allowing, I'm guessing that they have like a secured part of the hospital that only cleared personnel are allowed to access and it's like secured in some way so that they can't just leave. But it seems like, again, you have civilian doctors attending to them, right? Do they all have clearance? Maybe it's the same hospital they brought O'Neill to when he was like blue dick O'Neill. Because it would make sense if it was the same hospital because they're used to weird shit already. Now you're making like a second hospital where weird shit happens. Well, how do we know that these are civilian doctors? Dr. Frazier isn't. And the only other doctor we hear from is Dr. Jacobs. So now you're raising the, the possibility, though, that this is a very, very broad operation of people knowing about the Stargate. I, I mean, I, it seems like if you're trying to keep this tox, top secret, it's on a need to know basis. And if you have a whole hospital of like doctors and nurses and attendants and all that janitors, uh, orderlies knowing about this, that's like hundreds of people. The logic would follow that they would have top secret security level clearance. You wouldn't want just some doctor off the street <laughs> treating aliens. Okay, we see Dr. Fraser dictating notes over a patient who is covered in bandages. Symbiote Sam walks in and asks if this is the nausea. Oh, Maybe Symbiote Sam suspected there was an Ashrak, so she was looking for them. Oh, you think that's why she's at the hospital? Yeah. So the guy that Daniel's like saved this man is the Ashrak. So had he just left him to die, none of this would have happened. Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) It's all Daniel's fault. Dr. Frazier and Symbiote Sam walk out and go see Cassandra, and then the patient's belly starts to glow, which is weird. So I guess he's healing himself. Is that what we're supposed to believe? Well, he has that device inside him. He has the ribbon device inside him. So I guess he can activate it from inside himself. So this device, then it can kill, it can heal, and it can also control another person to drive the truck. 
can do everything. It did that in the first episode. I mean, I'm assuming it's the same device. It looks a little different, but it's the same type of device. But in Children of the Gods, it does make people sort of docile. Well, it subdues them. Yeah. But, yeah. but then the, the truck driver, you know, he's not, he's more than subdued. I mean, he actually drives the truck. Yeah. So it's not like he's passed out. Well, he ends up passing out. He ends up blacking out. Yeah. He doesn't remember driving at all. So maybe it just takes control of them and makes them do whatever the Gowald wants them to do. Symbiote Sam says hi to Cassandra and they hug. Cassandra knows something is up and pulls away. She runs away and Symbiote Sam's eyes glow. So it kind of seemed like when Symbiote Sam was hugging Cassandra, she looked actually pretty content. Like this wasn't some big ordeal that she had to pretend to have feelings for this girl. It seems like this episode gives you little hints that maybe we're not dealing with this big, bad Gaould. Maybe we're dealing with more softer, gentler Gaould. And I think this is one of those places where we get a little hint that maybe it's not a big, bad Gaould. Except for the fact that she tells Cassandra that she's going to kill her. Except for that. <laughs> I wish we could, have, we could have your face. Malika, well, Sam was saying that Malika's face was like, what the fuck are you doing? I know. Yeah. I was going to ask you. So Malika, what do you think? Because your face was like, Sam, that is bullshit. <laughs> no, I, I do see your point, Sam. That like, let's pretend we know nothing about what happens after this episode, as one of us doesn't know anything about what happens after this episode. There are things about the way this Gould slash Tokra acts that is different, right? First of all, it does appear to be hiding. Usually Goulds are big, bad, power hungry crazies. Even Kowalski, where it was like partially hiding, they can't resist the like power grab aggression. And this Gould does. It doesn't, it only asserts itself obviously when it's threatened or something. It doesn't seem to be harming people or creating any sabotage. It's not like looking for information or trying to do some nefarious things. And also you get the, well, this is later, but when they interview the wife and she's like, he was fine for two months. I didn't notice anything wrong. So yeah, I I think there are little, little hints that this may be a ghoul, but it's something that we haven't seen before. What were you thinking at this point, Malika? You thinking Cassandra was done? No, I was thinking, why is an 11-year-old finger painting? (laughs) I mean, I don't have kids, but I have never seen an 11-year-old finger painting on a little like plastic easel. Come on now. (laughs) She is traumatized from her experience. This is art therapy. Also, you don't ever, I mean, maybe an 11-year-old is different. You don't ever leave a child unattended in an office with paint ever. (laughs) Back at SGC, O'Neill gets a call from the hospital. Cassandra is upset and she wants to talk to him. And only him. She's locked herself in Dr. Fraser's office, but she will let him in. He uh, goes in and sits down next to her and they have a little chat. It's very, it's very sweet, but she takes her sweet time finally telling him that Sam is a gold. So this is the part when she tells O'Neill that symbiote sam told her that she would kill her if she told this secret my instinct coming from my background of social work and and working with children who suffered trauma i immediately was like like my brain switched off and i wasn't thinking about a gauld i was like oh my gosh carter has molested cassandra <laughs> That was the only thing I think of. Then I was like, wait, I need to dial this back. This is my own issues. Because, <laughs> I mean, hardly ever does somebody who you absolutely trust tell you, I'm going to murder you if you tell anybody. Only when you're molested. That's how it, it, it is a classic thing. Yeah, unfortunately. 
We go back to the SGC again. Symbiote Sam is walking around with her mission gear on, looking very annoyed. She barges in on Daniel and Teal while I think they're in the locker room and tells yeah. them to step on it. They, they look at each other like, shit, what was that? And then we see Symbiote Sam pacing in front of the Stargate and everyone is looking at her. O'Neill comes into the gate room. He stabs her with a, a needle and whatever it is, it apparently will take down an elephant. But Symbiote Sam grabs a gun and demands that they open the Stargate. And she has her gold voice on at this point. So many things about this. The voice gets better later on, but the voice in the Stargate where she's shouting, it, it's just so silly. I, I, I laughed at it. The, the gold voice? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think voice. they do get better at making it. I mean, the idea is to make it different than the regular voice, but it doesn't always work. They never explain what that because that's the Gould voice is that like whatever they do to it, but they don't have to. Right. Because when they're pretending to be regular people, they don't talk like that. So why they like do that and what mechanism makes them do that? They never explain. And then maybe O'Neill should have secured all of the weapons before tipping his hand that he knew it was going on. So, and he didn't tell Daniel and Teal, poor Daniel and Teal were like, totally like, what the fuck? Literally this one, why is Sam, my best friend, have a grenade and trying to kill me? I wonder why that was, I mean, I get the idea is that you, the plan, he probably discussed it with him and the plan was not to tip her off, to pretend everything's fine. And so he can get an opportunity to get right up to her, but still I don't see why you couldn't at least warn them. Symbiote Sam's eyes glow. And then a, an airman shoots her with even more of this elephant felling medicine. She backhands O'Neill, which is awesome, and then takes the pin out of a grenade. So she means business at this point. O'Neill rightly tells them to hold their fire since she is holding an active grenade. Finally feeling a little woozy, she starts to sway. She finally falls and O'Neill grabs the grenade and puts the pin back on. The airman takes Symbiote Sam away and O'Neill tells them to take it easy. This episode has ship all over it. Yeah. Okay. So do you think he's telling them to take it easy because it's Sam or because he hasn't found the grenade clip yet? Because it's Sam. Okay. Well, I mean, like, I, I think in this episode, I have a lot to say about the shippiness, but like when, when also when he's like, when the guy's like, I have a clear shot, sir, being like, we kill Goulds, don't we? Why aren't we killing this Gould? And he says, well, because if she drops that grenade, then why? Well, then you could do what you just did, which is grab it. And I don't know. I mean, I get the point. Don't shoot her. She's holding a grenade, but that was an excuse for him. He really just didn't want anyone to shoot Sam because he still saw her as Sam, even with the Gould in her. So if you were in um, wartime, wouldn't you just carry a whole bunch of pins <laughs> instead of like in the movies? I've never been in war type conflict. I've seen it in movies, especially like top secret. So that's like my reference, top secret. So you can put the pin back in, but you have to do it very carefully. And you can do that after the lever is released. And the pin is a safety mechanism. So it's it's actually the lever that activates the grenade. And then you have some time. But the pin holds the lever in place. Like, do you yeah, want that just sort of sloshing around your bag, though? What if it like the pin accidentally pops out and you blow up? You wear it in like a bolero or bandolero <laughs> across your chest. And they're all like, ding, 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 all the way down. Oh, it says here that soldiers sometimes put tape on grenades. Maybe they think this be like extra careful. <laughs> like, let's just put a little scotch tape on here. Yeah, it says, and this is army.mil, soldiers sometimes will tape the pin in place, but it only says to keep it from clanging, <laughs> not to keep it from exploding <laughs> and right. your body into little pieces. 
I mean, if they, if I was a soldier and somebody was like, here, take these explosives and keep them on you at all times, I'd want to be really damn sure that thing was not going to explode by accident. Sometimes I put pens in <laughs> waterproof <laughs> pen cases because I'm afraid that they will explode. <laughs> so I would be useless with a grenade. So this says from forces.net that a grenade goes off between two and six seconds. Pretty when, darn quickly. Yeah, you would want to grab it even before, because you don't even want that two seconds to start. Watch, we'll probably get comments. You don't know anything about grenades. No, we don't. <laughs> you are right. <laughs> Correct. Grenades is one thing we do not encounter in our line of work. Okay, back to the boardroom. Dr. Fraser reveals that Cassandra still has traces of Naquita in her blood, and maybe that's why she was able to detect the presence of a Gaould. Uh, O'Neill deduces that the blood on Carter's mouth during the rescue of the nauseans was probably from the symbiote's entry into her throat. Dr. Fraser now wants to subject everyone to MRIs or an ultrasound. That is going to take a long time. After every incident, they institute a new protocol, right? Like we talked about, like the airport, when somebody tries to blow up their shoes, now everyone has to take their shoes off. Eventually, though, they add a lot of a lot of protocols. It seems untenable to have this many, and you never really see them again. You just kind of assume they're getting done. You're going to be having to do a lot of things now for everyone that comes through the gate. Like an MRI is not a fast procedure. Just and have Cassandra hug everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's talk about not giving consent. Tilk brings up the possibility that Symbiote Sam could have hidden some bombs somewhere on the base or sabotaged something on the base. Uh, Hammond wants to make sure nobody else is carrying a symbiote. Meanwhile, O'Neill will have to interrogate her. O'Neill says that they are not that they're going to get that thing out of her, but Daniel, thanks Daniel, reminds him of Kowalski. And O'Neill sounds a little upset at this point. He sounds like almost panicked at the thought that she is not going to recover. He is very, very worried. Yeah. At the end of this boardroom scene, he almost does like a little sob sigh. I, I think he is quite distraught, way more so than one would be about a colleague. But they're not going to give up on Carter, nor are they going to tell the NID people. So we briefly cut back to the hospital. There's a red shirt doctor. He walks into the bandaged Nausean patient's room and the bandaged patient starts choking him. Yeah, that's Dr. Jacob. <laughs> they always kill the, do the doctors that you don't know. They always kill them, right? That's what happened with Kowalski. Well, yeah, he's a red shirt. We don't, we don't need to know him. I'm surprised Malika knows his name. You skipped the part about Daniel walking in on a partially naked lady who turns out to be a white uh, alien wife. I skipped it because it's literally Daniel walking in on a half-clothed Nausean wife. And I was thinking, they don't want to know about that. But then I thought, well, Malika might point it out because she hates Daniel. This yeah. is literally like the first time he's really spoken to her. But how rude are you not to <laughs> knock on the door before just barging in, knowing that people are just wearing, if they're wearing a hospital gown, that's all they're going to be wearing. He didn't knock. He just walked he in. Not knock, no. That's really not appropriate at all. And it was quite obvious that he had seen her naked butt. <laughs> yeah. Because the, the gown was open. No underwear, no Nazian underwear. Aliens don't necessarily wear underwear. Burlap I, underwear would be pretty uncomfortable. Yes, exactly. I would think as soon as the doctors and nurses hand you a hospital gown, you're going to be like, I'm taking off this burlap underwear. 
right away. So back at SGC, uh, O'Neill is sitting alone in a dark locker room, looking very devastated. Tilk enters and they have a, uh, a great discussion about how difficult the interrogation is going to be. Tilk wants O'Neill to insult the Gaul's intelligence and to try not to see his friend when he talks to Carter. O'Neill asks, how do you do that? So, so tough. Oh, I know. So I don't agree with you at this point, Rose, that O'Neill is especially upset because it's Carter. Because if you put Daniel in Carter's situation, I think he would be equally upset. And I think Malika might agree with me. I, I do think, I mean, I, I don't think if it was Daniel or Tilk, he'd just be like, oh, well, too bad for you. Like, I think he deeply, deeply cares about all members of his team. He would be devastated if any of them were, were going to be dying or had the prospect of being killed. But there's something about the way he reacts to Carter that seems very, very personal and intense that I think the way I read it is this is really the first time I, th- I think he's realizing his feelings for her and, and that they're deeper than just colleagues or friends. It, there's something about it that seemed far more intense. Like he's, you know, like you, we had Karai where he was faced with the prospect of Teal dying and Daniel has already died at least once. Like he, he's certainly upset and devastated, but it didn't, didn't feel the same to me. I can see if Tilk was taken over by Gawold, which obviously wouldn't happen, but if he was going to die and there was, and he had to interrogate him, same thing with Daniel, I think O'Neill would be equally as upset. And I'm not saying that I'm not a shipper, but I think O'Neill cares about his team a lot. And it's not specific to Symbiote Sam. Oh, I'm going to ship all over the place here. <laughs> So O'Neill visits the brig. Symbiote Sam's cell is protected by some cool looking lasers. I'm not sure how effective they are, but they look really cool. Yeah, at some point somebody just walks right through them. I'm like, what's the point of that? <laughs> Symbiote Sam is just standing there. She's half in light, half in shadow. O'Neill starts insulting the symbiote's intelligence. And Symbiote Sam says, oh, that's not going to work. She wants him to let her go. He refuses. She then turns around, sits on her bunk, and crosses her arms. So O'Neill is not going to get anything out of her. That's how I stop men from asking me questions. I just pout. <laughs> but she's not doing what the standard Gawold would do. I mean, I think that's the point of this scene. She's ignoring him. She's not showing the arrogance that Tilk alluded to in the scene before. Next scene, we're back at the hospital. Daniel's talking to the nauseant wife. He shows her a picture of her husband because apparently they take pictures of all these people. Well, I, first that was my question is like, where the, did they get this picture? But he says they got it from archival footage. So I guess at some point there, somebody was videotaping because he videotapes a lot when they're on planets. Hopefully it was consensual with this man's permission. And I guess it's a still from that video. But he's really bad at this. At like he's trying to get information from her and he's like impatient and badgering and he's just not good at this. This should not have been given to him as a job. Yeah, the wife said that there was some kind of cut or scar on her husband months ago, but he, his behavior didn't change at all. He was so- an asymptomatic carrier. Of a symbiote. <laughs> yes. a symbiote. <laughs> so later on we learned that the this symbiote in Carter is called Jolinar. Why was Jolinar in this guy for so long? So assuming we believe her, she's the Tok'ra. She's a member of the Tok'ra, which is like a Gould resistant cell and she's being hunted. And so they're the good Gould. We don't know that much about them, but they're the good Gould. So she was, I think, hiding. Unclear to me if she 
if the man knew that she was in there. Yeah, they didn't address the consensual issue. Later, we're going to hear from Jolar. Is that right? Jolinar of Monkshur. Oh, yeah, forget that. Jolinar. (laughs) We're going to hear from Jolinar that it is consensual and it's usually at the end of the person's life. But the guy, I mean, the symbiote was hiding in the guy and the husband for over two months. So he wasn't going to just kick the bucket and was like, I'm on death's door, go ahead and and jump into my throat. He didn't say something like that. He was fully planning on living. I mean, there is a question about, did Jolinar know that there was going to be this attack and he was going to die? But Daniel brings up Sheree. Sheree, Sheree, that ghoul have my wife, Sheree. I was like, you know, trying to connect with her. He's already treated her like garbage as he's seen her butt and walked in on her and seen her naked. And then he's going to subject her with Sheree's story. I'm just like, are you trying to humiliate this poor woman who's just lost her husband? I would have smacked him. I would say his forensic interviewing skills could use some work. Why is he the one doing this too? Exactly. They don't have professional forensic interviews. Like there actually is a skill to this, to getting information from people that you need to use later on. And then he is not one of these people that's trained. I don't know why. I'm sure the military has skilled interviewers available. Dr. Frazier would have done a better job. Daniel leaves the poor Nossian wife alone. And we then see the bandaged patient's room. The doctor is laying on the ground, presumably dead, and the bandaged patient starts removing his bandages, and then he coughs up a rather large ring device. So that's a big fat piece of jewelry to be carrying around in your belly. Are we to assume that this device healed him, and that's why he's not burnt anymore? I guess so. I guess it was like healing him, because it wasn't that what was lighting up in his belly? Well, we don't know these, this certain sect of Gawold's powers. Ghoul heal. You don't even need the. You don't need the ring device to heal yourself. I think you heal yourself by having a ghoul in you. So maybe he was just healing. He just healed himself because he's a ghoul. But I think the lighting up part had something to do with the device inside him. But also like, okay, gross. You vomit up like that was in his stomach, right? Like he vomits up the thing. He doesn't even rinse it off. Just rinse the shit off. You're in a sink. I was so grossed out. He just like wipes it and puts it on his finger. Wait, we don't know (laughs) there. If they even have a stomach, it could just be a pouch. We've never seen the human host. Oh, that's true. But have we seen him eat? We don't know if he eats. <laughs> when something is inside your body and you force it out of your body through some orifice, you should rinse it off before you then wear it. That's a rule. <laughs> and then Dr. Fraser comes in. She checks on the bandaged patient. And I think at this point, the bandaged patient is actually the missing doctor, but, yes. but they don't know that yet. Back to the brig, Symbiote Sam and O'Neill have apparently been staring at each other, waiting for one of them to break. Uh, Symbiote Sam does break. She asks him to let her go, and she promises she will send his friend back to him. Symbiote Sam reveals that the Nossian man she inhabited died first, which is why it had to find another host. Uh, the symbiote couldn't heal the Nossian man. He was too far gone. Oh, yeah. And then she's symbiote sans. She says something else I didn't quite understand. She said she was too valuable to die while she was holding the grenade in the gate room. Did you understand what she meant by that? 
is she saying that the SGC personnel wouldn't have killed her because it would have been too valuable to have a ghoul to study? I guess. Like, is that what she was saying? I don't think she's right about that. I think they would have killed her. I think so too. But so one thing, I, the one thought I had about this scene was I thought the lighting was really interesting. The lighting choices that they made. Because you have her, when she's sitting down and her face is like half in shadow. So you don't see the upper part of her face at all. And then when she's talking to him, you have like the, the bars the shadow on her face. And I wonder how much of that was intentional because I thought it was a really stark, I don't know, gave like a really intense feel to the whole scene. I think it was intentional, very much so. In fact, I was going to look and see who directed the scene. Martin Wood directed. I like him. Right. He's my favorite. Yeah, he's pretty good. <laughs> Sorry, Peter DeLuise. <laughs> well, he's going to be my favorite. <laughs> I mean, I like Peter DeLuise. I think, uh, no, I don't think his episodes are bad. I just love Martin Wood. I loved him in 21 Jump Street. So. <laughs> I'll love anything. So when we get to an episode, he apparently puts himself at like in a, as an extra in every episode. So you can do the like the spot Peter Deloise. <laughs> He's like that M. Night Shyamalan of SG-1. It is very subtle because I didn't notice it until somebody pointed it out. So O'Neill can't take it anymore and he walks away. And then suddenly we hear what sounds like Carter pleading with him to believe the symbiote. Carter presumably says, no, Jack, don't leave me. O'Neill kicks the door. He wants out now. The guard opens the door. O'Neill pretty much rushes out. And then the symbiote mask falls back over Carter's face. And we hear it saying, what will it take? So there's a pretty large controversy online about whether or not this was actually Carter coming through and pleading with Jack or if it was still the symbiote. So what did you think, Malika? What were your thoughts? It was absolutely the symbiote the whole time. My love is for horror, but my absolute love right now, in the past it was zombies, but now it is Satan and the <laughs> devil and possession. And this happens in every show, every movie, every TV show. The devil that is possessing a person pretends to be okay and be the original person and cries and whatever. Like this is an old trope, probably going back to the 17, 17th century. Demonic it, possession. It, well, yeah. And, and demons pretending to be the actual people that they're possessing. Same thing with symbiote Sam. This was never Sam. I don't know. I think it was Sam. Maybe it's because I know the rest of the show and like the the tokra we see them again and i learn more about them and i learn all we also learn more about this particular tokra and at the end of this episode sam seems really upset and conflicted about what happened and i think at this point she believes her like she or she the symbiote like she has started to identify because she must know what's going on right she's living in her body the symbiotes or the symbiotes in control of her body she's probably fighting it but she knows what it knows and if it's she knows it's a tokra i think she is saying yes she's telling the truth and she believes she was gonna die or it i keep saying she but she believes the, the symbiote was going to allow her to live because it did i mean in the end that's what it did so but she she switched back so fast. That's true. She did switch you know? back so fast. I understand that they're a better gold, but they're still gold. And the gold that is inhabiting Carter needs to get out and needs to protect themselves from the hunter that's coming. So why wouldn't they pull out all the stops and do everything? Yeah, I don't, I'm not like, I don't feel super strongly about it that I'm going to like argue to the death. <laughs> whether it was good or not. I think it can go either way. I think I think the fact that she switched back so qu like quickly and said, what will it take is a good point. But that whole like, please, Jack, like you can see the effect it was having on him. 
it was it's really one of those very intense scenes that they both play really well i think it was the symbiote because I, I don't think carter would have called him jack at that point back to the hospital the gaudi guy is he's just walking around hand devicing people so he's searching for yeah he's searching Tobra, right that's what he's doing so this is not just a ring device. This is something we haven't seen before. It doesn't really look like a ring device because no. the ring devices have little fingertips too. This is more like yeah. just a bracelet. Or it's a different kind of device. But do you think that this is like, it's miniature because it has to go in your stomach? In normal circumstances, it would be the full like glove, but this is like a portable. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a different device entirely. Like it has its purposes to look for whoever they're looking for and to kill. And to kind of brainwash. And it does have like three things. Maybe it has three settings, the three different colors on it. (laughs) And we go back to the brig. (laughs) Sam has requested Teal'c's presence. She calls him a Jaffa and asks him to convince the Tauri to let her go. She tells Teal'c that not all Gaud are the same and that she is a member of the Tok'ra. She says her name is Jolinar of Monkshore. And Teal'c looks suitably impressed, as if he has heard the name before. And we, I think we find out later that he has heard of the name. Jolinar, or has he heard of the Tok'ra? No, no, I think it's Jolinar, because he, I think he fills everyone in during a board meeting about who Jolinar is. I think she's a famous, famous, famous Tok'ra. Yeah, <laughs> a notorious Tok'ra. <laughs> And that's why I think Tilk identified. It's not like just some random Gaul saying, I'm part of the Tok'ra. It's like, I'm a specific, <laughs> special star of the Tok'ra. But it also made sense that the Gaul's don't tell the Jaffa about the Tok'ra. So it, it's it's right. more like a, a legend than an actual thing. Because Tilk does look a little freaked out. Like, oh shit, really? All right, back to the hospital. <laughs> Daniel, again, just opens a door and walks in on the, the bad guy doctor doing something weird to the Nausean wife. And then we cut to Dr. Fraser, I think, looking at some blood work in the hallway. And I guess from this blood work, she discovers that the, the guy who's all bandaged is actually the missing doctor. I don't know how, what do yeah. you think she was looking at? <laughs> like, what the fuck did she see in that file? Because she was like, oh shit, and runs. So I'm like, it must have been something really bad that would made it really obvious that the person whose blood work it was cannot be the person who was in that bed but they don't really explain it they do not like it could like was it a could wrong blood type or something but i i don't think that's enough to make her go oh my god <laughs> that nobody else noticed that is like enough to send her running what could it possibly be in a file what if it was like it was a blood type and instead of the ones that we know it was like p <laughs> she's like oh no when she's be like somebody in the lab obviously fucked up because that's not a blood type but then maybe that's the nasian blood type maybe it's an n plus back to sgc tilk and o'neill are walking down a hallway tilk is explaining the the topra legend to o'neill they enter the brig o'neill wants the symbiote to prove its identity show me your papers i guess which is difficult since the topra don't carry id but she does give them some information. The Nasian that healed healed himself is probably an Ashrak or a hunter or a Gaul assassin who carries out the orders of the system lords and it's here to kill Jolinar. But why do they keep calling the Gould he? It's in a female host. It's it's just like, and yet it, like, I know, they call it, it yeah. or she or something. I don't know. It annoyed me. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm trying to use the it pronoun. Is that a pronoun? No. I'm, I'm trying or, to use I guess we it. could use the singular they. 
because it's a genderless being. But now Joe and I are talking through Carter. Should we call that it since we are talking to the symbiote? I guess so. Yeah. The pronoun, the, the assumption of the he pronoun. First of all, it's sexist because it, like the default he is a sexist thing. Like, I guess they didn't have they's back then. They didn't use they as a singular pronoun. Did you notice that symbiote Sam is starting to look really haggard? This is the- She does have like the dark circles under her eyes. Which I have cream for. I have lots of cream for. <laughs> Later on in the boardroom, SG-1 and Hammond are discussing the situation. Tilk tells them that Braytac told him that Jolinar tried to overthrow the system lords, but was defeated when Apophis joined the battle. And then Jolinar escaped. Um, so I think this is when we are beginning to realize the Tok'ra are the resistance. Uh, they also, they didn't find any evidence that symbiote Sam sabotaged anything on the base or left a bomb. So that's good. So this, at this point, I think they're starting to believe it. Yeah, the story's checking out. So how old do we think Jolinar is? So do we ever learn how long Goulds naturally live? I mean, they do the, they obviously do the reviving thing in the sarcophagus. And so I think they could live with the sarcophagus like thousands of years, but without the sarcophagus, I think probably hundreds of years. And next up, it's Daniel's turn to visit Symbiote Sam. This is the first time he's come to see her. He wants a description of the Ashrak, which she cannot give because she doesn't know what he looks like. She asks Daniel to let her go. And then he does this weird thing where he steps forward and says, sorry, Sam, I can't do that. And then he starts to walk away and Symbiote Sam knows exactly what to say to bring him back. Sheree! <laughs> Malika, I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. You know, we go periods of time where Daniel doesn't talk about Sheree. And this is a two Sheree mention episode. So you know I'm hating it. The thing is, is that Symbiote Sam has all of Carter's memories. So she she knows Sheree's name. She knows that this is like a sore spot for Daniel. This is a button to push. So I kind of equated it with her begging O'Neill at the end of the other scene when when he was interviewing her and trying to get out of there and she started doing that crying thing it's like so, a tactic she's like oh i know what's going to get him to and it works he's like bffs with her after this he's like she can help us yeah, yeah she tells him a lot of information about the the tokra and then he goes and tells uh, o'neil hamid and tilk all about it daniel also tells them that the tokra they coexist with their hosts uh, they don't take hosts against their will but Carter uh, was taken against her will. Exactly. Yeah. And the Nossian, we don't know what happened to the Nossian. So in the background, we see that the Ashrag has new clothes and he uses the hand device to make the truck driver just drive to SGC. And, and they're driving the Nossians back to, I guess, the Stargate to send them back to their world. Next, we get to see the SGC base entryway, I guess. Do, do you think the SG-1 enters by this way? When they go to the base? So. I would think that they would have as few entrances as possible so they could make sure that only authorized personnel are coming in. This is such a big complex. You only ever see like the outside, the full outside, but NORAD's on top of it, right? So this is like, after you go through NORAD, then you're going to go through this. I, my claustrophobia would be like, hell fucking no. <laughs> I am not <clears throat> going in this giant tomb complex. Thank you very much. It kind of reminds me of that um, complex in Resident Evil. The Umbrella Corporation. Yes. Okay, a handprint 
gets you into the base and the Ashrak puts his hand down, even though he knows it's not going to work, but he ring devices the guard and the guard lets him in, but his, the hand, which wasn't in the database does set off the alarm because we see the red lights, but I mean, there's no alert that seems to be happening on the SGC that, that someone's trying to get in that shouldn't get in. Yeah. Like what if somebody just shoots that guy and walks in? Like, like if you're trying to break through the, like, it seems like one guy, there should be some kind of fail safe where like a door won't open if it's not green, but like, yeah, what if you're trying to break in, you shoot that guy, there's nobody else there. You just walk right through. Nobody finds out for like 20 other minutes that there's somebody shot. (laughs) Back at the control center, Hammond gets a call from the infirmary. The bus driver that drove the Nossians does not remember actually driving them, which seems a little concerning. O'Neill gets the idea to pull the security footage up from Jolinar's cell, but it's all staticky. O'Neill and Teal run towards the cell while Hammond calls security. Is it that they don't believe that there's an assassin? Because at this point, Jolinar's like, there's somebody who is trying to kill me and he's going to succeed. Just so you know, and they're like, no, 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 he won't. So they shouldn't they be like, hey, there may be somebody trying to get in here and post maybe two guards there. But when have we ever seen SGC take precautions before something actually bad happens they're absolutely reactionary there's no there's no like less i mean it's easier to get into this facility than to get into the fucking courthouse so we go we go through security there's like eight guards there <laughs> the ashrak has killed or incapacitated the guards he opens the cell door and he says i okay he gives her an official speech like i will execute you speech i didn't write it down but the gist of it is i will kill jolinar by the order of so-and-so then jolinar gives her own little speech did not write that down but it sounded very speechy and official he starts torturing her with a hand device which shows her skeleton which was interesting effect but weird the guards barge in symbiote sam's on the ground ashrak says that she's dead ashrak takes off with two other guards following they pass o'neill and teal'c in the hallway o'neill goes to symbiote sam he cups her face he's trying to revive her he calls her sam and she ever so slightly opens her eyes. So this whole scene, I have some thoughts. <laughs> okay, what are your thoughts? First of all, he rips open that gate like it's nothing. I know ghouls have like some strength, but this super strength thing, he goes right through those lasers. So obviously nobody's monitoring them. Okay. Maybe all the guards in that in that control room were supposed to be like monitoring the lasers, but no alarms ringing. I don't know, breaking into a prison cell and the lasers, you would think there's more than just the guards is the idea that he didn't get to finish. Like, so he sentenced, he says, you're sentenced to death, incapacitates her, then doesn't, and then is able to leave. So did he get interrupted? And so he didn't fully get to kill her? Cause Sam's not dead. Why was nobody suspecting him when everyone's like to the, to the brig, go to room, whatever. And then they find this guy standing over the dead prisoner and nobody's like, stop, drop. Who are you? What are you doing here? They're just like, oh, okay. I think Tilk did look back in the hallway at them as they were running. Jack's main focus is Carter. Of course. He's like, whatever. To me, this is very shippy. Like he seems very, very distraught this whole episode that he might lose Carter more than he would if it was a different member of his team. If it was Daniel? Yeah, he loves Daniel. I I know, but I feel his like, it's like a panic at the the idea of losing Carter. I don't think he would have cupped Daniel's face. I think he probably would have slapped (laughs) Daniel to get him off. I think we all would slap Daniel. And I, I don't know if I agree that she wasn't dead because in the next scene, we see Dr. Frazier giving her CPR, which means that her heart had stopped. He did finish, but they just got to her in time. 
Well, the Asherak is trying to kill the symbiote, not so much the host. So maybe he thought the symbiote was as good as dead. But symbiote dies because it saves Carter, right? So it was unclear to me, had there been another host available, if it would have just jumped into the host, if it would have lived and Carter would have died and it chose not to do that. Yeah, it would have hopped into O'Neill. Okay, next scene, we see Frasier writing on top of Symbiote Sam performing CPR. They do a bunch of medical stuff. They detect two different brain waves. Dr. Frasier doesn't really know what to do, but it looks like the gold is dying and taking Sam with it. Look at O'Neill's face. I'm sorry, but like you see his face and he's like, oh my God. Yeah, he does seem a little bothered. Behind the scenes information about this is that the cart ran over his foot. <laughs> and that was why <laughs> Richard Dean Anderson was crying. Well, it worked. It's <laughs> an excellent choice because it really, his face is perfect for that scene. I don't want to get too shippy here. You don't, why not? But Dr. Frazier seemed very panicked and she was giving Symbiote Sam CPR and she's pulling out all the stops. I would totally have a Janet Sam ship thing going. When she's riding on top of Carter, she yells out, bring me an epi or something like that. And I was like, an epi pin? Are you saying that she's allergic to the symbiote? Like what, what are we talking about here? I mean, I think they're just like, what the fuck? How do you treat somebody that's dying of gold poisoning? Nobody knows. So let's just try things. Let's try what you would use if somebody ate a peanut. (laughs) Seems like the equivalent. Okay, we cut to the gate room. Daniel is sending off the Gnostian wife through the Stargate. The Ashrak shows up. Daniel recognizes him. And the Ashrak then takes Daniel hostage. Why are they sending people through the gate at all right now? They don't know who the hunter is. Shut that shit down for a second. Like, give us 15 minutes to find the bad guy, right? Which is what they usually do when there's like some unidentified badness on the base. They shut everything down. And Daniel really keeps stepping in at this episode, right? Like, he's like, hey, I know you. And then gets himself taken hostage. Like, he, I feel like he just doesn't, is not doing anything useful. Feels like a liability to me. I'm just saying. Back in the infirmary, the alert goes off. O'Neill sends Teal'c to deal with the alert. That's nice. He won't leave her. Uh, Teal goes to the gate room. He shows up. He says, sorry, Daniel, or Dr. Jackson. And then he just zats both the Ashrak and Daniel. Daniel falls to the ground and then he zats the Ashrak, killing him. That was my favorite part. He (laughs) shot Daniel with his hat gun. And we go back to the infirmary, the parasite, as they call it, the Gaul, eventually dies. They start detecting a pulse. Carter seems to be coming back around. They give her oxygen. O'Neill tells her that she did it. She beat the Gaul. Then she shakes her head and says it wasn't her. The Gaul gave its life for her. It saved her. I think that Sam would have really intense feelings about what just happened to her and on so many levels. And and that's why that end scene where they have her just sort of catatonic in the bed makes so much sense to me. Like a feel, it's the first time we really see a character have to go through processing. And in this case, they, and they do, this isn't just the end of the storyline. Like she does have a process with this whole thing that is like arcs over several seasons. First of all, it's like the violation of having your body taken over without your consent. That's pretty traumatic. But then having all her memories and all her feelings and believing that she's doing this for some ultimate good and having to wrestle with the fact that somebody that you think is a good person just victimized you. It's going to be a lot. 
I do think that Cassandra was brought in for two reasons. One, to make Carter feel better. And two, like a scan, just to check. <laughs> to make sure that gold is gone. Okay, so Cassandra could tell Gould's because she has the Naquita and the Naquita can sense presences. Now Sam has the Naquita too because the, it's a, her body's absorbing the Gould and people who have Gould in them, even after it dies, have that Naquita. So with that, like every time Sam and Cassandra are next to each other, are they always going to have that like tingly feeling or is it only a live Gould that brings that? Probably, although it, I think later on, it's not as consistent as it should be. It's definitely not consistent. And does Teal'c have that ability? Because he has a gold in him, but maybe it's not like merged with him. So it doesn't get into the bloodstream or something. I don't know. Okay, this is the point when we come up with a, a rating for the episode. So Rose, what is your rating for this episode? I'm torn between six and seven. I really like this episode. I think I'm going to say six and a half. I really like this episode. I mainly like it because I think Amanda Tapping just does a fantastic job. There are some plot holes as we've identified, but the I love the dynamic between her and O'Neill. And I just think she, Amanda Tapping, just always rises to the challenge. So when you have these like Sam-focused episodes, she really uses them to just like bring a whole lot more depth and humanity to Sam's character in the way that I don't even know if the writers had intended. But I, I feel like, I feel like her character grows a lot in this episode and that growth continues throughout the next few seasons. And that's like entirely because of her doing a great job. I give it a four. Sorry. <laughs> I give it a four. I thought Carter was great as Joel and R. And I also liked the concept behind everything. The plot holes were a little much for me and were problematic. So that's why I had to reduce it to a four. But I agree. Amanda Tapping did a terrific job. And I can never give an episode that talks about Sheree two times <laughs> anything over a four. <laughs> Yeah, I'm torn between a six and a seven as well. I think I'll go with a six. I was going to give this a seven, but talking about it has revealed some plot holes. Amanda Tapping is awesome. I love the devastation that's on O'Neill's face, even though I think he probably would have looked the same if it were Daniel, who was in trouble. But I'd like to think that there's something a little extra there for Carter. Okay, if this episode were shown today or made today, what would be different about it? They'd be a little more careful with their pronoun usage. I think this, I think the security, maybe because we live in such a security state now, and this is, this is what pre 9-11s, even though it's a top secret base, I think they should have more than one guard at the front. I don't think you had that same culture of like super security that we have now. So that would probably have cleaned up some of the plot holes and maybe made the storyline impossible because this Astrak would never have gotten inside. I think also we would have a science consultant on who would help with the plot holes. Even though I, I am pleasantly surprised at a lot of the concepts that are brought out, it's not really fleshed out and it feels a little bit like, yeah, this is problematic, but let's go on to the next scene. So how do we feel about Jolinar? I mean, at this point, like, I think Jolinar is a really complicated character. And usually in Stargate, at least up to this point, you really get pretty flat, good or bad characters. I think she's a snob. I mean, I, I know she's a Gaul, So she does share some of the Gaul traits. Are we supposed to hate her for sort of doing this to Sam? Or are we supposed to see her as like this hopeful way they could fight against the gold? I think the latter. Yeah, I don't think we're supposed to hate her. But she did. I mean, she effectively, I mean, it's like rape, right? It's taking over someone's body, using it for your own purposes without their consent in a way that's like extremely violating. And that leaves the other person to have to deal with the trauma. 
So next up we have Prisoners, which is episode three of season two. Hopefully you will join us. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 absolute love right now in the past it was zombies but now it is satan and the devil